0: story because to me it's a big picture of what David is going through in a microcosm in his own life. In Second Samuel chapter 11, that's where we read that he entered into a sin, an adulterous relationship with a woman Bath, named Bathsheba, and eventually, because he'd impregnated her, conspired to have her husband killed on the battlefield. And so a man, guilty of adultery and murder, then in 2 Samuel 12, confronted through the prophet, through the living God. The Spirit sent Nathan the prophet, and Nathan confronted him, and Nathan shared with him that though God had put David's sin away from him, there would be certain consequences that would come into his life. The sword would not depart from David's house. Uh, Even though there would be one to sit on the throne eternally in David's house, it would also be a house of war. It would be a house of bloodshed. Even his own children would turn against him. And David was going to now enter into a time of life where he was going to watch this unfold. And as he watched it, there would be a consciousness that, that he shared responsibility for what was happening before his eyes. And what we see almost immediately here in 2 Samuel chapter 13, it's terrible. We're going to see lust that dominates a man's heart to the point that he is willing to violently violate a woman. We're going to read of that woman's response to the rape that she experiences and that she goes through. We're going to see David's silence in the midst of all of it, though angry, and we're going to see the eventual, eventual vengeance, not that David performs, but that another of his sons performs in taking the offender's life. It's a dark episode in the life of David. That's why I've titled the message today, In the Muck and the Mire, We Need Jesus. Because if there was ever a passage of Scripture that looked like muck and mire to me, this is it. You know, this section of Scripture where it's just, it's just gruesome. You know, in a sense, in my heart, as we've been kind of, you know, as a Bible teacher, it's not like each week I'm like, oh, wow, that's what's next? Like, for, for me, in general, I have an idea. Like, okay, these are the stories that are coming. This is what's happening. And as the weeks have ticked by, you know, it's like David and Goliath, who doesn't want to preach on David and Goliath Sunday? You know, the, the David staying his hand from taking Saul's life. Who doesn't want to talk about that purity of heart in David's life? But I've known, man, this, this day is coming. I'm going to have to talk about a difficult passage in God's Word. And, and there's part of me that says I, I don't look forward to it, but there's another portion of my heart because I know that this is life that cherishes the opportunity. So what I want to show you in this passage are these different characters, Amnon the offender, Tamar the offended, David the father, and I want to show you how Jesus Christ is the answer for every one of them, that all this muck and all this mire, Jesus, his gospel, what he provides, he is the solution for each one of these people. So let's start out with the scene itself in the first 14 verses, if we could read it together. It says in verse 1, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he, had, that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now pause for a second. David had multiple wives. We've already covered that. I've talked at length about it. It was an error, a sin in his life. And because he had multiple wives, he had children, of course, with these multiple women. And so Absalom and Tamar that are mentioned first, they are full-blooded brother and sister. Amnon is the oldest of David's sons, but through a different mother. And so Amnon is half-brother with Absalom and Tamar. Tamar, and Amnon begins to go through this thing where he begins to lust after his half-sister. Now the ingredients of this are terrible. Uh, One ingredient that created this potentially in Amnon's heart is that even though in Leviticus God had prohibited marriage or romantic relationship with a half-sibling, in a lot of cultures, including sometimes during Israelite history and culture, it was permissible for them to enter into a relationship with a half-sibling. And so it's very possible that he thought that this might be okay. But obviously, it went beyond just an interest in Tamar. It became a lust that caused him physical illness because she had become if you will, a forbidden fruit in his life. You see, the, they would take the king's daughters and they would sort of sequester them, protect them. And so he felt, I can't get access to her. And so this is where the whole story begins, with the lustful desire in this perverted man's heart. But Amnon, verse 3, had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So Jonadab is... David's nephew. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Notice how the flesh wants to twist reality to make it sound a little bit better. I mean, just to say my my, my brother Absalom's sister. That sounds terrible by itself. But he couldn't bring himself to say, my sister. And so, Jonadab, verse 5, said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber or the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, He took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel to do, do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, verse 13, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. It it feels as if she is trying to say anything to fight for her life and to get away from Amnon's presence. But verse 14, he would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. In a sense, as you're reading this, especially when you consider the setting in which it is written, it's written right after the David and Bathsheba and Nathan and David consequences for David and Bathsheba's sins episodes. And as you read this, in a sense, it seems that the reader is to come away with the impression that what Amnon has done is he has taken the sins of his father David to a new level. Uh, David took another man's wife, but Amnon took his sister. Uh, David used his power, his position, to exert emotional force upon Bathsheba, but Amnon used physical force. And David, after Bathsheba was impregnated and then Uriah was murdered he married Bathsheba but as we'll see in a moment Amnon will hate Tamar and drive her from his presence it seems that what Amnon has done is take what David did and perfect it bring it if you will into a new level of sin he had taken a sin from his father and had taken it to a brand new New and more horrid level. Look, in a sense, this is what we so often do. We take the sins of our community, we take the sins of the people around us, we take the sins of this world and we develop them, cultivate them into something even more grotesque. And at times, we actually take the literal sins of our literal fathers and develop them in our own lives, cultivate them in our own lives. This is why one of the first things I wanted to point out is that what we need Jesus Christ for is we need Jesus to help us break the sins of our fathers. Ezekiel the prophet, when he came along, he prophesied of a day that God would give to us, his people, a new heart and a new spirit and that he would drive out the heart of stone and you and i we live in that era where we need the lord to give to us that new heart and the christian life in a sense is a battle to perpetually and continually live more by the new heart that christ has given to us than by the old heart that we were born with or that we inherited through our forefathers i have a group a set of friends who the husband has worked so hard to overcome very specific sins that his father modeled for him and showed him just blatant ugly kinds of things that he learned in his childhood and now as a christian man walking with the lord he's said to himself i don't want to repeat the error of my father. And they've talked about it so much over the years in their marriage that it's actually come, become like a little safety code word at times when they're battling through something and he's beginning to regress and go back to acting like his dad that w- when it's safe in the right time and I'm sure sometimes when it's not safe and it's not the right time she will say to him she'll say okay and instead of using his name she'll use his father's name and it's he's, he told me he said, and there's been a lot of times where she just says that and I just say oh okay you're right. I'm acting like the very person I don't want to be. But there's a Lord in heaven, a God in heaven, who, when we believe in him, he gives to us a new heart that we might be changed, that we might be different, that the corrupted hearts within can be changed and replaced by the Lord. Amnon is an example of a person whose heart was so corrupted, and he was in need of the Lord to give to him a new heart, to transform his heart he did not need jonadab as a friend or uh, he did not need to plan and plot this evil he needed the lord to intersect and stop him uh, in his life and heart all right so that's the first thing i wanted us to see the need for jesus christ to deliver us a new heart and thank god by the gospel he has made a way for that but let's read what's what happens next not just to amnon but of course to the victim to tamar It says in verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman, he couldn't even call her by her name any longer, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put on ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went and her brother absalom said to her has amnon your brother been with you now hold your peace my sister he is your brother do not take this to heart so tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother absalom's house now i want to say something before i talk about tamar Uh, about Absalom. It's possible that Absalom was actually using his sister Tamar for his own purposes. You see, the order of birth of David's sons was Amnon first, and then Absalom was the next living son. David had a second son who had probably died at childbirth, but he is mentioned in David's genealogy, but he's off the scene at this point. So Amnon is number one. That means he's the logical heir to the throne. Absalom is number two. The only impediment for him of getting to the throne is the presence of Amnon, more than likely in his mind. Later in Absalom's life, he will attempt to steal the throne from David. He'll actually be successful for a short period of time. And David will have to flee from Jerusalem, but eventually he'll be able to return after Absalom's death. So we know later that he's a man who will conspire to get the throne. Later in this same story, a few years later, but in this same chapter, Absalom is going to kill Amnon. And Jonadab. Remember Jonadab, the guy who told Amnon what to do and all of that? Jonadab will be sitting next to the king when Absalom kills Amnon, and he'll tell the king, this is what Absalom has done. He has killed not all of your sons. He's only killed Amnon. He's privy to the plot. He's privy to the plan. So that leads some people to think that Absalom, in this moment, was actually using Tamar to lure Amnon into a sin worthy of death so that he could take matters into his own hands, eliminate Amnon, and be the logical heir to the throne. That's why that, that might make a little sense of his response to Tamar. I mean, who says something like that to their sister in verse 20 after an event like this in her life? Hold your peace. Do not take this to heart. It's a terrible response. You're like, what, what is that about? You know, hold your... It's like, like don't worry it's not a big, I mean, that's the worst thing you could say. Hold your peace, don't take this to heart. It has so hurt her heart. How could he say such a thing? And maybe that's why. Maybe he has conspired and he's excited about what he's now going to get to do to Amnon. But back to Tamar. It is clear that she is decimated by this event in her life. There are 13 things I want to point out to you that happened to Tamar or in this event that I think are quite often repeated in our modern era when sexual abuse takes place. Number one, there was a predator. And the predator, by the way, and this is often very common, happened to be a family member. Number two, he was a wicked man and she was innocent. There was nothing within her that was trying to draw him or lure him. It was all wickedness on his part and all innocence on her part. Number three, there was an act of aggression. He crossed the line and became comfortable taking hold of her, grabbing her, violating her space and her body. Eventually, number four, he not only grabbed her, but he violated her, it says in verse eleven and in verse fourteen, he raped her. Number five, it was a thing not done in Israel. That's what it says in verse eleven. And actually, when Tamar says that to Amnon, she's actually quoting from the book of Genesis, because in the book of Genesis there was an episode where one of the, the, the daughter of, of Israel or the daughter of Jacob a woman named Dinah, she was raped. And when her brothers heard about it, they said that in Genesis 34. They said, this is an, an outrageous thing not done in Israel. In other words, we just recognize it isn't right. This shouldn't take place. And she quotes that. She's a, a woman of the Word. And she says, this is an outrageous thing. It's not done in Israel. Then also, verse 13, notice this. He shamed her. That's what she talks about. Where would I take my shame? Then in verse 15, an eighth element is so typical. He hated her with a stronger hate than the lust that he had for her. What what happened there is that she became a mirror. And when he saw her, he saw himself. He saw the blackness of Of his own soul, the darkness of his own soul. And so when he saw her, he saw himself accurately. And so he had to try to dismiss her. Then there was force involved, verse 11 and verse 14. And she then was, if I could say it this way, in verse 16, she became confused and misguided. This was such a jarring, stressful, traumatic experience that she went through that she actually began saying, don't send me away. If you do that, it'll be worse than the first. There's like this odd response that she has. Now, probably some of that had to do with the culture that she lived in. But I think some of it had to have been connected to the fact that she is po- she's in a post-traumatic state at this moment. The wires have been crossed there, uh, whether permanently or briefly. She experiences loss. That's why she tears her robe, puts on ashes. She's crying. She's going through a grief process. She has lost something. And then, unfortunately, the final element that you see there is family silence. Absalom says nothing. And as we'll see in a moment, David also says nothing. And unfortunately, this is far too often the case. A family will join together in silence about an abuse that has been place, that, that, that has taken place that they know about. But Tamar, as she's gone through this now, she has begun to feel this deep Loss, this deep grief in her heart. She feels that something significant has been lost in her life. And it has. But what she hasn't lost in the sight of God is her value as a human being, her value as a woman. She thought, you know, I'm going to tear these garments. I should not be married. She thought that she had lost that value But though she had been violated, God valued her life. She grieved and mourned as if her life was over, but one day there would come one who would walk the earth, the Son of God. And when he walked through the region of the Galilee, he would heal the sick and cleanse the leper and give sight to the blind. And one of the things that Jesus did is he went to those who were outcast and hurt and marginalized by others, he would speak life into their bodies he took a woman like Mary Magdalene who had been possessed by seven demons and he set her free from her demonic possession so that she could become part of his team so that she could be valued by Christ and the reason I'm saying all of that is because in despair like this what Amnon needed was a new heart but what does Tamar need Tamar needs for Jesus to declare worth to her soul We need the Lord to speak into our lives to remind us that we have deep and wonderful value to Him. You see, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It is the blood of Jesus that is the evaluation of God upon human lives. Don't you wish that you could sit with Tamar and read to her from the book of Romans? Don't you wish that you could read to her of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Read to her of the way that Jesus takes people who are are, have been harmed and sinned against and feel that brokenness inwardly and how Jesus cleanses and releases from shame and brings them into His love and into His family and puts His Spirit inside of them so that they could cry out, Abba, Father. Don't you wish that you could share that with her? Don't you wish you could read from Romans 8, verse thirty? 1 to 39 to her let me read it to you what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all including you tamar how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us, Tamar, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul wrote, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including Amnon Tamar, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need Jesus to speak that life and that value into our hearts, to declare our worth to our souls now the next character that we see is david and it's very brief it just says it in verse 21 if you'd read that together with me it says when king david heard all of all these things he was very angry when he heard all these things he was very angry and you would imagine that he was livid you know very upset by what he heard But what you don't read of next is action from David. You read of inactivity. It was actually Absalom who would do something about this sin uh, that had taken place. David felt angry, but that's all he did. He just responded with a feeling, responded with an emotion, but did not act out upon it. He didn't punish Amnon. He didn't speak to Tamar. He just was angry within his heart. And this seems to have been the norm in David's life. He didn't deal with Amnon. Later, we'll see that he will not deal with Absalom. And then later, when he's nearing death as an aged man a one of his sons named Adonijah will try to steal the throne from him while he's still alive and rather than confront him it says in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 6 David never at any time confronted his son by asking why have you done thus and so there was a there was a silence that came over David there was an inactivity as a father that came over uh, his life and it might not be hard for us to imagine why he he had sinned he he knew that some of the things he was watching were the results of his own sin these were consequences in his own life this was part of god's judgment upon his life and upon uh, his future and perhaps as he looked at amnon he felt that he was completely disqualified to be able to share with this man. Perhaps he felt a sense of unworthiness to be able to open his mouth and say, look, you've erred, you've sinned, you must get right with God. This is not right what you have done. It is worthy of death. But because of his own guilt and his own past failings, perhaps David, for those reasons, remained silent. But you see, the thing that Jesus Christ can do for us is that he can give to us a voice that we really have not earned you see on one side of the equation the enemy would love to whisper into our ears you have no voice because you have failed but you know there's another side of that coin that he would also love to whisper into our ears? He would love to, at times, whisper into our ears, you have a voice because you have succeeded. He would love to whisper into our ears that you have something to say because you have made something of your life or you have nothing to say because of this past sin in your life. But Jesus wants to whisper into our hearts, you have a voice because I have given it to you by my blood It is all of grace. You see, think about what Paul said to fathers in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He said, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's shocking to me, or what's wonderful to me, is the fact that there are few qualifiers to that statement. It isn't fathers. Bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord as long as you have just nailed it. You know, if you've had 63 days in a row of having a quiet time, then you can bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. If you've had, out of 52 Sundays of the year, you had a 49 Sundays of going to church, you know, attendance record, then you can bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. No, he doesn't say that. He just says, fathers, this is what you're to do to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, you've heard me teach for quite a bit. You know that I think going to church is a good idea and reading your Bible every day is a good idea. These are great things for us to model and to lead our families, to lead our, church, our, our, our children in if we happen to be blessed by the Lord to be fathers. But the reality is we are not standing on the platform of our successes. We are standing on the platform of the grace of God. And David, I think at this moment in his life, could have opened his mouth to speak to his daughter, to speak to his sons. He could have opened his mouth to his family. Just as he cried out to God when God said this child that you've had with Bathsheba is not going to live. He cried out to God, God, please let this child live. Maybe the Lord will extend me that grace. Maybe the Lord will extend me that mercy. He could have had the same hope about his adult children. He could have had the same hope that the catastrophe that was promised because of his sin would have been abated by God's grace, by God's mercy. But instead, he sat silently when the Lord wanted to use his life in this moment. Now let's close by reading this last little section. It goes all the way to the end of the chapter it's kind of the wrapping up of this part of the episode it says in verse 22 but absalom spoke to amnon neither good nor bad for absalom hated amnon because he'd violated his sister tamar after two full years absalom had sheep shears at baal hazor which is near ephraim and absalom invited all the king's sons And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him But he would not go, but gave him his blessing. So after a couple of years, Absalom comes to David, and he's like, look, you know, I'm shearing my sheep. This was kind of a cause for great celebration in ancient Israel. It was kind of the day that the money came flooding in. You've been raising this sheep, and so they'd have a a big festival, a big feast, and they'd all celebrate it. So Absalom's trying to get David to come to this big sheep shearing party. So it's kind of like a, uh, you know... uh, just just a wonderful celebration to get David to come to. But David declines, he refuses, and gives his blessing uh, on the whole celebration. So then Absalom, verse 26, said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So everybody gets to go. David's not going to go, but all the sons... Then Absalom, verse 28, commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. They, they thought that they were also Absalom's target. So when they see him strike Amnon, they get up and they flee for their lives. It's always struck me as slightly humorous that they got on their mules and were riding. It just seems so slow motion to me, you know, Hee-haw, slowly, but that's what they had. Well, they were on the way, verse 30, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them has, is left. It wasn't true, but that was the report that he got. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, verse 32, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, remember him, the advisor to Amnon? There he is next to David. He said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. So he knew Absalom's plan. But Absalom, verse 34, fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. So this Group coming to David they were all the rest of the king's sons and as soon as he had finished speaking behold the king's sons came and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly but Absalom fled and went to Talmai the son of Amahud king of Geshur now uh, Absalom's mother was this king of Geshur's daughter so David had married this princess of Geshur, so that he's Absalom's running to his maternal grandfather. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Absalom. Amnon since he was dead. So after three years, David has finally grieved for Amnon. It feels awkward because you're not seeing a grief about Tamar, but he grieves for Amnon. But then at the end of this three years, he's he's, he's processed that. And now he misses Absalom. He wants Absalom to return. Now, what we've read in all of this is in a sense, are the consequences of David's sin. You know, Amnon imitates him to a greater degree. Absalom, in a sense, imitates David because he conspires to kill Amnon. David conspired to kill Uriah. Tamar is abused because of David's unhealthy home, all of the plurality of wives and everything being backwards. He has no moral ground to stand on, and so he's been silent and his own voice is muted. And did you notice in the passage that twice he gives permission to his children, and both times it leads to their demise. It was very unwitting. He didn't know when he told Amnon, yeah, tell Tamar to come and make you some. He didn't know what was going to happen, but it was his permission that was granted. And he didn't know when he gave permission to Absalom to have this festival, this sheep-shearing party with all of his brothers, that it would lead to Amnon's death, but it was his permission that was granted. He likely was feeling the weight of these consequences in his life. Now, I'm sure many of you this week and And last week as well, as we were thinking about the judgment of God upon David's life, I mean, the prophet came to him and said, this is what's going to happen to you. God has put away your sin, but the sword's not going to depart from your house. An enemy is going to take your wives before all of Israel. You did it secretly, but God's going to do this publicly. I mean... I'm your your child your 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 baby with Bathsheba is going to die there may have been some of us as we kind of read of all of that and then see even this week the chaos and disorder that came into his family that 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 maybe have felt a little bit like this is a really severe judgment from God maybe even part of you that might feel like this doesn't seem to be fair that the Lord would do this to this man. It seems a little bit over the top. And I just wanted to mention a few considerations before I talk about this consequence in David's life. The first thing I wanted to mention is just we we must remember that there are times since God is vast and beyond us that He will do things that our intellects, our little intellects, just can't track with. Not Not that He is beyond comprehension he's he's beyond our full comprehension but he has made himself known to us but there will just be times because he's holy and we are not he's unlimited and we are limited he's divine and we are not that there will be things that god does that are holy and right and true and good but where our minds it's just very hard for us to process that might be true in this story for you another thing to remember would be the consequence of the baby that died You know, in that consequence, remember what David said? He said, I will go to him, but he will not come to me. In David's understanding of things, this child, very young, in infancy, after death, went to be with God eternally. And so, though some of us might say, well, that seems harsh, and others might have said, that seems a little bit too much, you know, there's one character who has never complained about that decision, and it's the baby. Because for all of eternity, he's been in the presence of the Lord. And maybe even if we had a chance to be with him, what he might say to us is, Did you read about David's family? I'm really glad I escaped it. (laughs) It was tough going to be his full-grown adult child. Right. So, you have to remember that, I think, to a degree. You have to also remember that, on one hand, these were all the natural outflow of David's sin not all just some new thing that god is doing kind of interjecting himself it might just be god pulling back the curtain and saying look when you do something like that this is what happens in the following generations but we also have to remember that david was the king of israel he'd received messianic promises from god he was in a high and lofty position he was an example not just for his generation but for every successive generation I think it was very important that God deal severely with David in that sin because those sins are such a common temptation in every era and in every culture. So for God to take it lightly could have been damaging to future generations. I think God saved many more human lives and many more marriages because he dealt severely with David in this moment than had he let David get off easily. But I think we also need to remember this. I don't know if you know this about the Lord, but it seems apparent that the greater the revelation you have, the greater responsibility you have to respond to that revelation. For example, when Jesus walked the earth, he said to the cities Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, he said to them, woe to you, He'd gone and done miracles in all these cities, preached in all these cities. He said, if the works done in you had been done in... And then he went for like the Old Testament trifecta of bad places. He said, if these works that I've been doing in your midst had been done in Tyre, Sidon, and the region of Sodom, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. So it will be easier for them on the day of judgment than it will be for you is what Christ told those towns and cities what is that were they doing the same level of evil and sin that the people of Tyre Sidon and Sodom had done in one sense no but in another sense because their revelation was so high what they'd received from God was so high what they were doing was such an abomination in the sight of God rejecting Christ David's revelation was off the charts. He had written Scripture. He had received a promise that the Messiah would come from his family. His revelation was off the charts. This is not like a man who's been in Christ for three weeks and is just barely learning how to walk with the Lord, falling into the same thing with Bathsheba and Uriah and all of that. This is a man who's experienced great revelation. And so his judgment is rather severe. And... We should also remember that in the midst of all of this, God's mercy was available to David to repair that which had been broken because of his own sin. But with all of that said, here's how I want to end. God was walking with David in the midst of all of these consequences. David was still writing songs. David was still penning Scripture. He was still singing to the Lord. He had been revived in chapter 12. You see, sometimes the muck and the mire that we're walking through is just general life, humanity. Stuff that others have done to us and just the fallen and brokenness that is out there. But you know, sometimes the muck and the mire that we're walking through, it is of our own creation. And in those moments it might feel to us as if God wants to say, look, you created that mess. Have fun walking through it. But we serve a God who does not turn a blind eye to the mess that we've caused, but nor does He remove Himself entirely from it. We serve a God who became one of us and says what I desire to do is to walk through The muck and the mire, even the muck and the mire that you caused, I'll stand with you, I'll strengthen you, and and as you are reaping that which you have sown, biblical principle, Old and New Testament, as you are reaping what you have sown, I'm still standing with you. I'm still walking with you. I'm still speaking to you and encouraging you Hebrews 13 verse 5 in the midst of all of that Jesus says I will never leave you or forsake you so I think sometimes it's just good for us because I think I've watched Christians that like to just kind of put blinders on about the muck and the mire that has been caused by their own lives like it's okay it's okay it's fine Jesus forgives me it's fine it's fine it's fine it's fine it's like look there is a mess there is a mess that has sometimes been created by your own doing but there is a God who wants to walk with you as you repair and work to, to confess and to restore and to reengage with people that you've hurt and that, you, that are broken as a result of what you have done. There's a God who wants to walk through all of that with you. Don't put on the blinders. Let him take them off. Show you that he's forgiven you, but that he wants to walk with you through the muck and mire that has been left as a result.